This morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. Let me pray before we read the word this morning. Our Father, we look to you like beggars looking for food. Our souls are in need of nourishment. Our minds are in need of studying. Our affections are in need of stirring. So would you take your word as you have promised this morning and would you declare it in our midst with power, with efficacy? Would your spirit to take this eternal living word and apply it to us? We ask because it would give you glory. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. This is the holy and errant word of God. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me remind you where we're at here in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has just gotten away the night before, and He is away with His three inner core disciples, the men that He was closest to and most intimate with in friendship as He was living His earthly life, John and James and then the Apostle Peter. And it was during this night that he agonized with his father in prayer throughout the night, and he had taken these three intimate friends with him so that 
he said, so that they could stay awake, be alert, and pray for him. He would go off, and he would pray, and he would come back, and he would find them each time asleep. You will remember three separate times. This is the scene, and now it's the morning of, and he has come back the third time, and as he has come back to them, he is speaking to these three disciples of his, his most intimate friends on earth that have failed him through the night, and he is expressing his disappointment to them. Matthew tells us that in the midst of his speaking to them, that this is when this crowd came. And as this crowd is coming, at the head of this crowd is Judas. This crowd that has clubs and that has swords, and they are coming to arrest Jesus. This is the scene. Now, don't misinterpret here. We hear a crowd like this coming for Jesus, and we automatically start thinking of a mob scene. And it may be that as this crowd was making its way to Gethsemane, that there were different people that joined this crowd, but this is not a mob that is coming for Jesus. Matthew tells us here in the text that rather this is a crowd that was sent with authority. We're told that this crowd was sent, he says, by the chief priests and by the elders. This is the clergy or the lay members of the Sanhedrin. And so they are coming with a religious authority to arrest Jesus. John will tell us in his gospel that not only were there priests in the mix of this crowd, not only were there servants of the priests in this crowd, but there were also soldiers in this crowd that were sent to arrest Jesus. And so there is governmental authority. And Judas told this crowd before he got there that when he got there, he would give a sign to them of who Jesus was. This is not so odd. We think, well, wouldn't they know who Jesus is? He was a pretty public persona. He was someone that was well-known. Well, this is before there is photography, and this is even before many people are doing painted pictures of one another. And so, he, though he is widely known, it's not so strange that they wouldn't know him by sight. And so, Judas relays that he is going to give them a sign. And he tells them that sign will be the sign of a kiss. It's one of these moments. There are different moments, I think, in Scripture. As I read Scripture, it just feels like a, a slap across the face or like cold water that's been thrown in our face as we read. And this is one of those. But here's a disciple who has walked with Jesus, who has seen the love of Christ, and he is going to go and he's going to betray this Christ with the sign of affection, with a kiss. And that's meant to slap you across the face. That you might see the heinousness of this man. But here's the other interesting thing about that, isn't it? Is that Judas, he knew Christ so well and had been so intimate with Christ that he knew he could just walk right up next to him and give him a kiss on the cheek. That's what his relationship was like with his disciples. He greets Christ with warmth, greetings rabbi, greetings teacher, though he hasn't learned any of the lessons that Christ has been teaching, and Christ gives him a cold response and reply. Though he says, friend, 
do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do. This is essential because this betrayal is not a surprise to Jesus. The arrest is not a surprise to Jesus. And his march up to the cross on Mount Calvary is not a surprise to Jesus. He's not surprised by these things. He not only experiences these things, he has decreed these things. So do what you need to do, Judas. I want to consider this text this morning with you in four ways by looking at the four principal parties in this passage. I want to look at the folly of Judas, and then the folly of the crowd, and then the folly of Peter, and then I want to look at the wisdom of Christ. So, the folly of Judas, the folly of the crowd, the folly of Peter, and then the wisdom of Christ. We'll take a little deeper look at Judas when we get to chapter 27. That will give us more of an opportunity to wrestle with this, how this could be decreed, how you could have this son of perdition in the midst of the disciples. But what I want us at least to do this morning is learn from the folly of Judas. And the first is this, is that small sins entertained become great sins to destruction. Small sins entertained become great sins to destruction. Judas had every opportunity to walk in repentance. He had every opportunity to turn to faith in Christ. He was so intimate with Christ, he knew Him so well that he could march right up next to Him and give Him a kiss on the cheek. We don't know much about Judas. There isn't a lot of detail in the Scriptures about him, but what we do know of him is we saw earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we know that he was the first treasurer of the church, if you will. He kept the money bag of Jesus and the disciples. And we know he didn't just keep it, but we know that as Matthew tells us, he pilfered money out of it. He used much of that money for his own benefit, and he got angry when Jesus and the disciples were liberal in their giving from this money because it, it prevented some of his graft, some of his taking money off the top. He was a man of greed. Was it greed that hardened his heart to the point of betraying Christ? It's likely. Sin has a hardening effect. Every Pet sin we entertain is never as tame as we would like to think. You don't adopt a bear cub. You just don't do it. It's cuddly. It feels like you can tame this thing, but the problem is you have to keep feeding it. And as you keep feeding it, it grows. And as it grows, it eventually comes to the place where it can devour you. There are no small sins. I was uh, actually was telling the first service on my drive here this morning. I drove up next to a man that I administered to 15 years ago in this community. And over 15 years ago, I confronted him about a sin in his life. And I can remember having this conversation, he was incredibly defensive and he would not receive it in any way. And he got very angry with me and there was all kinds of fallout because of it. And it's a sin that consumed him. 
It literally shattered his entire life. It seemed pretty small when I was addressing it with him. I was looking at him in the car next to me this morning, and he just looks like a shell of himself. His whole life shattered. We often look at a man like Stalin or Hitler or Judas, and we ask, how could that happen? Did you know that Stalin actually went to seminary and was considering the priesthood? Do you know that Hitler, when he was a teenager, had talked about becoming a priest, and that he, as a child, grew up going to Bible class every single week? Do you know that many historians say the only person that they think Hitler ever loved was his mother, and she was a devout Catholic? If Judas who walked with Christ, he talked with Christ, he was a disciple of Christ. How could such hardening happen to those who heard? Small refusals to respond to the word today, the prick of our conscience today, the clarion call of Christ today provides for the searing of the conscience tomorrow, the hardness of the heart next month, and the refusal of Christ for all of eternity. As Isaiah admonished, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Oh, don't lose him while you can have him. His pet sins aren't worth it. But you also recognize from the folly of Judas that we should never count belonging to the community of those who follow Christ as truly knowing Christ. He had all the benefits of being near Christ and His people, and yet He was so far away. And that is a warning for us in the church. There are so many that think they are safe because you are here. You're not safe because you're here. That just isn't true. But there are so many that confuse those two things. We hear the words of Christ every week from this pulpit, even as, Jesus, as Judas did. We listen to people praise Christ in song, even as Judas did on that Palm Sunday as he went in Jerusalem. We have seen people brought from darkness to life and their entire lives changed, just as Judas did with the leper or the woman at the well or the lame man, and we can be far from him. Association with those who know Christ is not knowing Christ. Neither is being able to point to Him and knowing about Him the same as living in vital, saving union with Him. Are you united to Him? Do you know Him? Charles Simeon, the famous 19th century preacher, once said this, said to have a distinct experimental knowledge, that is, you experience knowing Christ. To have a distinct experimental knowledge of Christ, to be able to say, He has loved me and given Himself for me, is often of more value than ten, is of more value than 10,000 worlds. It is that and that alone which can ever comfort, sanctify, or save the soul. Do you have that experimental knowledge? 
Not that you know that Christ loves sinners. Not that you know that Christ died for sinners. That little two-word pronoun is operative. It is all important. Do you, can you say Christ died for me? Christ loves me. There's a world of difference. Judas couldn't. I recently read someone say that a little girl got up in front of her home local church and she had gotten up that Sunday as they practiced in their church where the children would get up and recite different verses and she got up to recite Psalm 23 before the congregation. And you all know that psalm well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she stood up and she said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. It's a world of truth in that misquote. When you have Christ, it's all you want. Is that all that you want is Christ? Second, I want you to see the folly of the world. The folly of the world. It's a such an incredibly sad and horrific scene. Here you have Christ, the very Son of God, who came into the world to give peace, to reconcile fallen sinners to God the Father. And here you have a crowd that is coming after Him with clubs and swords and accusing Him falsely. The very thing that they say they are about and they want, they're seeking to crucify in person. And it just shows the foolishness of the world, the folly of the world. I want you to notice the thought process in this passage and the inferences that are made about Christ in this passage. Jesus says this, he says, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. They regularly saw him worshiping his father. They saw him teaching the scriptures. They saw him showering people with love. They heard this teaching and they saw his life, but they wouldn't seize him in public. They come to Him in a place that is secluded and a place that is set off. And they come to Him in that private place with clubs and swords to arrest Him. They come out to Him, Jesus says, as if He was a robber. And they arrest Him, and they arrest Him on the charges of being a blasphemer and a disturber of the peace. A blasphemer, the Son of God. A disturber of the peace, he who is the prince of peace and comes to usher in real, everlasting peace. And there's a principle here. I'd like you to recognize this. It is this, the godly are almost always persecuted, not for what they are, but for what they are not. No Christian has been brought up on charges for being a God-centered, loving person of worship. In fact, it is always another charge that is brought, and it is always the opposite of what we actually are. And why is that? Because they hate that which they feel condemned by. And that is the folly of the world. Here is a clarion call to wake up. Here is truth. And they hate it so much that they will accuse the very thing that is given to them as being the thing that is opposed to it. 
when Christians are persecuted in the first centuries, it is because of the love. It's not because of the love that they showed their fellow men or that they were saving children, infants that were being left out in the cold or that they were feeding the hungry. Rather, they were accused of being disturbers of the peace because they did not worship the Roman gods. When here they are sowing peace everywhere. The reformers, when striking against the paganism of their day, are called sectarian or are called rabble-rousers. When they are going back to the truth in our day and in the days ahead, the ground is being laid. It's not to alienate and marginalize Christians for our desire to live peaceable and godly lives because that is what we are aimed after, but we are being labeled as bigots and disturbers of the peace because we won't adhere to a secular establishment's definition of tolerance. What the world says it desires, love and joy and peace and kindness and love, these are the very things that we have in spades as the people of God. And it will be the very things that you're accused of not having. And that is the height of folly. This has a long history. shouldn't surprise us. This is what the serpent did in the garden. You will remember this is the very first thing. This is the lie. This is the accusation as he goes to Eve and he is sowing doubt in her mind. Is God really good Eve? Where where does that come from? How can you accuse Him who is truly good, who defines goodness, who has given all good things in creation to Adam and Eve and all of mankind, that this is theirs to enjoy, and you have a serpent that comes with the lying accusation where He turns the thing on its head and He doubts the very thing that is true. God defines good. You know what? Eve, maybe he's not actually good. He's trying to keep good from you. It's the old lie. As it was in the garden with God, so it continues to be in the world with His people. Now, what's the response that should be offered by the church? It's not the response of Peter. Third, we see the folly of Peter. Matthew tells us that in response to this crowd that has come to arrest Jesus and and bring these accusations to bear upon him and lead him to trial, that Peter then reaches for his sword and he brandishes this sword and he ends up cutting off the ear of the chief priest's servant. John in his gospel tells us that as Peter, Matthew doesn't give us that information here. Now, Peter, he is no swordsman. He is a fisherman. It's not as if he was looking at the servant of the the chief priest and thought, that's the man we need to go after, and we need to go after his ear, and he went for the ear. No, Peter is just responding. This is just a fit of action on his part, and it is foolish. And we are often like this. We often strike out with force, thinking we are delivering a great blow for the sake of Christ when we are doing little more than slicing an ear. And so Jesus quickly stops any others from acting so foolishly. He commands the sword to be put away, and He says in a kind of proverbial way, He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Now, there are many that over the years have taken this as if Jesus is a pacifist, and he is saying that you should never raise a sword, and that is not the case. Jesus was no pacifist. There are times that the sword is to be brandished. There are times that we are to defend our homes and our families and our nation, and in opposition to oppression, Jesus is not a pacifist. Then what is he saying here? He's saying what he has said over and over throughout the gospel that his work is not done by worldly strength. As one theologian said, the kingdom is neither advanced by force nor defended by force. And yet so often we respond in fleshly strength, especially when there is opposition. And that, we think, is a show of loyalty to Christ. My friends, to misquote the Mandalorians, that is not the way. That's not the way. It appears courageous, it appears strong, it appears noble, but it is foolish. To do great things for Christ means that you must do Christ things in Christ ways. We have so many people that are like Uzzah, reaching out their hand to study that ark. Or like Moses, are going to hit that rock twice. He does not honor nor reward what he does not encourage. And so many in the church are just equipping the enemy in the name of Christ. There's a lot of action, a lot of boldness, a lot of plotting and planning, and it accomplishes the cutting off of an ear at the expense of denying the power of the cross. I was looking at pictures yesterday on the internet. I don't know if these are real or not. Uh, We will know in the days ahead, I think, as different people seek to verify, but there were pictures of different Taliban soldiers yesterday that popped up that were in front of caches of, of weapons. Weapons that had been left behind by the Afghan government and that had been left behind by Afghan soldiers and that we had supplied to them. So often, this is what we are like. We're bringing weapons to the field, we're employing them, and yet all we're doing is simply supplying the enemy. But we know better. We think we know better. And this is the foolishness of Peter here. Of doing things in our own strength. This has marked the church throughout the ages. It is a constant struggle that we have to remind ourselves not to give into the temptation over and over. We could take high times such as all of European Christendom stirred up for the Crusades, literally brandishing the sword for the sake of Christ. And how often have the Crusades been used as an argument against Christian love and against Christian virtue and against what is our true spiritual mandate in the century since? Or you think of those people during the Middle Ages that began to erect a system of penance and said, oh, this would help to free men's consciences if only they could do things. And those doing of things would let them know that they were no longer responsible for that sin. And it just created wealth for the church. And it didn't free people from bondage. It kept them in greater bondage. 
You think about the modern evangelical church today. There are so many in the church that want to reach this culture in new ways. This is a new day and we need new ways. What worked in previous centuries doesn't work in the 21st century anymore. We've changed. People are too sophisticated. So we come up with new ways, creative approaches. And we wander from what He has given to us. He has established His kingdom. And He is moving His kingdom forward. And He does it by His means, not ours. And His means are the Word of God. His means are prayer. His means are the sacraments. It's not what you and I can be creative about. What we can develop and what we can plot and plan. It's just attending to the simple things that He has given to us. We depend upon Him. It's not strength that demonstrates our loyalty to Christ, but the exercise of dependent faith. Peter thought this was the moment. I'm going to bear my sword. This is the moment. This is the test of my loyalty to Christ, and I'm going to show it. And he should have been looking to Christ in faith. Not to exercise our own strength. This is the call for you as a Christian spouse, as a friend, as a parent, as a counselor, as a discipler, as an evangelist, as an elder, as a deacon, me as a preacher. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29 when God says this. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And Paul goes on to ask, where is the one who is wise? And then he asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It is foolishness to preach Christ. It is foolishness to preach Christ crucified even more. And yet that... It's what we are told to do. And Paul says, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We look to Him. But, but this would work so much better. We look to Him. The more I go through the Christian life, the more and more I just keep getting led back to this. I just want to be more and more a man of the Word and prayer. Why? Because that's where He meets me. That's where He meets you. That's where He dispenses His grace to you. That's where He strengthens you for the battle that you are in the midst of. And if you want to be of good in this world, it is by those means that He uses you in this world. So you have to be steeped in the Word. You have to be steeped in prayer. What should it have looked like for Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, what he had been charged with. He should have been determined to do what Christ had told him to do. He heard Christ's word. When Jesus says, stay awake and pray with me, this is what he should have done, and he failed. He wasn't concerned with what he should have been concerned about, and now that which he has was not to be concerned about, he's concerned about. This is so often what we do. 
He has given us this. He's given us this charge. This is what I am to be and to do. This is what I'm to be concerned about. Yes, but I'm concerned about this. He didn't make that your concern. He made this your concern. Stay in your lane. How much trouble would we avoid if we just stayed in our lane? If we just obeyed the word that we heard from him and his commands and stayed in our lane. As this crowd comes towards him, he, Peter reaches out for a sword. This is the moment that he's going to defend his Savior. He's going to show forth his loyalty to Christ. But no, it was before that he was to be doing battle. He didn't understand it. He was supposed to be doing battle upon his knees. It's interesting to me that in the moment, that failure of the disciples in the garden, Christ doesn't just dismiss them. He is a merciful Savior. We fail over and over, and He continues to pour out His grace. But now Peter has opportunity again, and what does he do? He seeks to operate in his own strength. What would it have looked like for Peter after that night of failure, now that the crowd is coming, what would it have looked like for, for him to be a man of faithfulness in that moment when they came? Well, surely it was not grabbing the sword. We know that. It was his own strength. Surely it would have been looking to Christ. And maybe even asking of Christ, what is it that you would have us to do here, Christ? We're so busy that we often don't just stop and look to Christ and say, what is it that you would have me to do here, Christ? Dependence on Him, not our own strength. That is wisdom. Over and over, the church falls prey to thinking it can cause and manipulate and flex and orchestrate to cause Christ's kingdom proper to prosper. And it seems so silly to many that what we do is this. That we gather in worship, that we center ourselves upon the Word, and that we pray. This seems so silly. But this is His mean. It seems so silly to gather your family together at home each night as you can and read the Word together and pray. It seems so silly. There are other things that will bind a family together more. It's not silly. It's His means. He's given us the Word and prayer. Are you people of the Word and prayer? Jesus makes it clear that he could ask his father for legions of angels if he so desired. He doesn't need the weapons of men and fighting the foolishness of the men in the world. And my friends, neither do you. You just don't need it. You have Christ, the wisdom of the ages. Hugh Martin, an old Scottish Presbyterian pastor, was preaching on this passage and he commented that we should remember this, that we have Christ, 
and we have all that Christ had. He said, because Satan will constantly counsel, avoid trial at the price of sin. Avoid trial at the price of sin. That is always his bargain and is always an empty offer. And Martin counsels us to never allow a friend of ours to assist us by schemes in which unrighteousness enters in even a hair's breadth into our lives. Not even a hair's breadth. Peter brandishes his sword, just a hair's breadth of unrighteousness. No, stop it, Peter. A friend says, ah, you could escape this trial just a little more if we just did this. No, you stop it. You are no friend. Not even a hair's breadth. What do you depend upon in the moment of trial, in the moment of tribulation, and when it is coming your way and you can see it on the horizon, you depend upon Him? And how do you depend upon Him? In word and prayer. That's how. That's what Jesus does. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what is He doing? This is His wisdom. All night long He is praying. And when they come to approach Him, He can stand firm. He can stand resolved. Why? Because He has communed with His Father. He has been strengthened by His Father and by the Spirit. And then what does He say? He can accept what is happening. Why? Because He says, this is so the Scriptures might be fulfilled. He's a man of the Word and a man of prayer, and so He can stand. Be strong and courageous. And often what we mean by that is go do. You know what strong and courageous is? It's not being strong in your own strength. It's being strong and courageous by depending upon Him. That's strong and courageous. And it's folly to the world. It's wisdom to the Christian. Be strong and courageous. Be a person of the Word. Be a person of prayer. And you'll notice with Christ, it's both. It's both. There's some that are great people of the Word. You know the Word. You got knowledge of the Word. You can articulate doctrine of the Word. You can articulate the theology. But it is cold, it is dry, and you are a mere theologian because you are not a person of prayer. You don't know that communion with Christ. There are others that, oh, they are great people of prayer. They're spiritualists, but it's not grounded in the Word. The Word's not shaping and forming their prayer life. It's not telling them who they're praying to and what they should actually be praying about. Be a person of the Word and prayer. This is the way of our Lord. This is the way of wisdom. Notice at the very end, just in closing, Jesus is standing alone. All the disciples have fled him now. But he's resolved. Everybody's left him, but he's resolved. He can do that because he knows the truth of the Scriptures and because he has been void in his faith. He's a man of faith, void in his faith by his night spent in prayer with his Father. But here's what he also knows. He knows he's not truly alone. That's what the word and prayer remind you and I over and over and over. We're not alone. So the trials can come, the tribulations can come, the troubles can come, 
The crowd can come and oppose us. Every single friend can abandon us. And we can say, not alone. He who has a host of heavenly angels at his disposal has them aimed at our good. He who controls all things in the palm of his hands, who sovereign decrees all things, has you as the affection of his love. And even now, this Lord in Christ who led the way is at the right hand of the Father doing what he is praying for you. And he is making all your enemies and my enemies a footstool beneath his feet. You're not alone. No matter what the world calls you, no matter how foolish you seem, you're not alone. You steep yourself in the word and you steep yourself in prayer to constantly remind yourself of that even as our Lord did. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise. As King Eternal who sits enthroned above, we're thankful that you've given your people the word and prayer, we are thankful for the resolve of our Savior to go to the cross, even at the loss of all of his earthly friends. And we're thankful that you have given us your spirit and this word and prayer that we might stand firm in a day that calls for. May we be people that look to you in dependence and not depend upon our own strength. May we do your things and your ways to your glory and actually be of earthly good as a result. Keep us, we pray. Keep us as yours. Keep us as a church. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.